Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's really a great pleasure for me to see all of you this evening celebrating the publication of a book that many of you will have heard about um, on numerous occasions from either Harold or from me already, The Civil War and 50 Objects. Um, I do want to let you know that uh, Audubon's Aviary, part one of the complete flock, is closing on May 19th, so you just have a few more days to see that great exhibition if you haven't seen it already, and World War II and New York City will be closing on May 27th. Uh, I also want to bring to your attention, I know many of you are there every Friday evening, the wonderful Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your pay-as-you-wish admission on Friday evenings. Um, and then finally, I want to say, if you're not yet a member of the New York Historical Society, tonight's the night to do it. Your membership supports great programs like this evening's program, as well as the exhibitions, educational uh, outreach, and um, everything else that we do at this wonderful institution. It's all supported by you. So please join if you haven't already. Tonight's program, The Civil War and 50 Objects, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to the Historical Society. I'd also like to uh, recognize a few people in the audience who have gone way above and beyond the call of duty to support our work. Um, above all, our board vice chair, Pam Schaffler. Thank you, Pam, for everything you've done on our behalf. And then I'd like to recognize many members of our Board of Trustees are here this evening because this is such a great event um, for us. And I'd like to recognize them, Francie Blasberg, Buzzy Godold, Ed Hintz, Lawrence Jacobs, Sid Lapidus, Tarky Lombardi, Carl Mangus, Russell Penoyer, Sue Ann Weinberg. And uh, finally, I wanted to acknowledge Wendy Wolf, who brought the idea to us from Viking Press, alas, She's working tonight, so she's not here. But in absentia, we really appreciate her um, thinking of New York Historical Society when Viking decided to do this, uh, this great book. Tonight's program will last about an hour. It will include a question and answer session. And as usual, we will ask people with questions to approach a standing microphone, either to my left or to my right in the aisles. Uh, we do that so that the speakers can hear your question, everyone in the audience can hear your question, and um, the people who are filming this for television, uh, this program for television, can also capture the questions. Um, also, after the, the program this evening, uh, our speakers' books will be available in our bookstore, and there will be a book signing as well as a reception, which my colleague Dale Gregory will talk about a little later on. So, Harold Holzer is Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, and in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served as a content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln and his new book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, 
tells the story of the Civil War through the use of 50 objects from the collection of the New York Historical Society. We are also very pleased indeed to welcome back our great friend, Eric Foner, the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. He is the author of many celebrated books on the Civil War, slavery, and reconstruction, including The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, which received the Pulitzer, Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes. He's an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the British Academy, and has served as the president of several organizations, including the American Historical Association. Dr. Foner contributed the introduction to the Civil War and 50 Objects, for which we are immensely grateful. So as always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything like a cell phone that makes noise is switched off. And now it is my pleasure to invite our speakers to the stage. Well, thank you, uh, Louise Mira, and thanks to all of you for coming this evening. Um, I'm very happy to be here to congratulate Harold Holzer on producing this book. My, I wrote the introduction, which was a small thing. He put the whole book together, and uh, which is a very big thing, and I urge you to take a look at it. Um, and I gather, I haven't quite seen it yet because I just got here, the, 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 the Civil War of 50 Objects is a sort of rotating exhibition which will be on here for a while. All 50 objects are not visible at once, but the first one is on display at the top of the stairs, right? And then over time, more will rotate in and out, and some of them are permanently on view in the loose collection upstairs, so you can find them. But um, anyway, uh, I'm going to start just by asking Harold to explain um, how this idea came about of the Civil War and 50 objects and sort of what criteria you used in choosing these objects out of the very rich collections of the New York Historical Society. Well, as Louise Mirror uh, has told us, the idea for once came from a publisher and not from a writer, <laughs> or even from the museum. Um, it came from Viking Press, which uh, commissioned it almost as a, um, a follow-up or sort of an American sequel to Neil McGregor's book, The History of the World in 100 Objects, that focused on the British Museum collection. So they had this, this uh, question about whether you could do the same kind of book about the Civil War. Were there, were there 50 objects here? <laughs> well, there were a million. One million Civil War objects and documents and scraps and photographs and paintings uh, in, in the collection. So how did we do it? Well, with all of these riches, and um, the, the biggest uh, treasure of all is um, a woman named Valerie Paley who was here today who was the 51st object, or really the first object <laughs> in the collection. Thank you, Valerie. But she was not around at the time of the Civil War. She was certainly not around at the time of the Civil War. But she knows everything in this collection and was part of the process. So Louise invited me in and, and said, you know the, the, the great hits, the, the draft wheel and the other great objects. But I'm going to put 60 or 70 items on a table and ask you to come in. And so winnow it down to about 35 or 40, and then you'll have the other 10. I mean, it was like going to the world's most um, unheralded flea market and nobody else is a customer. You've got bankrolled with a million dollars. You can take anything you want. And I saw things there that I'd never seen before. And, mm -hmm. and 
as we'll go through some of these objects. Right. But you can, it, so the goals were, I should be, just very briefly. One is to show the story of the Civil War from slavery to freedom, which not every book that's focused on objects and relics does. Um, and the second thing was to show the variety in the collections. Um, you see it on the cover. The, the, that American flag waved from a window on Fifth Avenue during the first parade of the 7th Regiment down Broadway in April 61 in response to Sumter. The Zouave uniform was worn um, um, by a uh, soldier from New York. Uh, the silver medal was commissioned by Benjamin Butler, the general who is known as Spoons Butler for appropriating silver spoons. Well, maybe he melted them all down because he made these medals for African-American troops who fought in, in the Newmarket battles before Richmond. The cast of Lincoln's hands. Right swollen from handshaking on the night of his, after his nomination. The drum was carried in Bull Run, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, uh, and has a few bullet holes to prove it. This is the well, extraordinary the, range here. Well, just the cover itself, as Harold said, illustrates objects as perhaps a rather neutral kind of yeah. word. The range of three-dimensional things, but also letters, placards, broadsides, the, the, the incredible range of artifacts that a museum like this has and which we're going to see a selection of. So what we're going to do is actually, you will be able to see on the screen here, uh, a selection. We're going to go through some of the 50 objects and talk a little bit about each of them. And then um, at about 7.15 or so, we will stop and invite questions from the audience. So let's go to the first one. Um, this is not show and tell. We're not asking for people to identify it. but. <laughs> Harold, one of you, you may ask me to identify. Right. What, what is this? It looks sort of nondescript and primitive, but it's one of the 900 pikes, wooden and steel pikes, that John Brown ordered from a Connecticut manufacturer to be shipped to him in Virginia. As advanced as John Brown was, he did not believe that African Americans could take rifles from the Harper's Ferry arsenal and know how to use them. So he, he I thought that they would, should be armed with spears, almost medieval spears. So he spears. brought pikes along with him to Harper's, to Harper's Ferry, Ferry to arm the slaves who he thought or hoped would rise would up, rise up and uh, join him in a slave revolution. This did not happen, of course, but it is odd, as you said, you're seizing an armory <laughs> which is full of thousands of weapons right. and yet you're bringing weapons in order to be part of this. Um, so why does John Brown the first object in this, in, this, uh, in this book. The first object is, well, again, the story is slavery to freedom. So it actually, the, the collection starts with a wonderful little sixth plate daguerreotype that I hope some of you go upstairs to see. Mm -hmm. It's on view now. A, a hundred plus year old enslaved man named Caesar mm. from Bethlehem, New York, who was so old that the 1808 New York State Emancipation of Slavery Law did not cover him. Mm -hmm. because he was over 70. I right. think the law exempted people who were over 70 because they thought they would just they fall would, into poverty. Right, they would just be released with no support right. and everything. And he lived another 40 years, to, eight, to the age of 110, the last slave of New York. And there he is, all dressed up, looking very either dignified or angry. It invites your, your own interpretation. But it's a tragic It's a remarkable story. daguerreotype, yeah. So, so okay. then we go to John Brown because he attempted to start the Civil War two years before it started, or a year and, and a half. And uh, he certainly helped uh, push the country along the road to, yeah. to Civil War. One of the um, misconceptions that we might still have about the Civil War is that a united North 
faced off against the United South. And we know that so here's a both sides had serious internal divisions. So the second object, what, what is this one? Well, we wanted to put something in there early that testified to the complications of New York at the dawn of the Civil War. Only 35% of New York City resident, uh, voters voted for Abraham Lincoln. This was a democratic town and was an anti-war town. So here is the mayor of New York in, this, in the winter of 61, who has not only come out for secession, we know that, he wants New York to be a city-state, he's issued a diplomatic overture to the state of Louisiana to open up a separate front that New York will continue trading and having external relations with a Confederate and this is state. Fernando Wood. Fernando Wood. Now much better known than he was because of because his appearance. Because he later ran for Congress after we dumped him as mayor. Right. And, and he, he was there for the Spielberg In the movie. Lincoln movie, right. Fernando Wood plays a role in the House of Representatives. Right. But this is so the mayor of New York, in the middle of the secession crisis, sends this document to the people of Louisiana. And um, um, to, advising them to secure the rights of the South and continue trading. With New York, he has the good sense to donate all of his pieces directly to the New York Historical Society. <laughs> That's why it's been preserved in this pristine condition. The story about how these objects got here is almost as interesting as the objects themselves. This is a very interesting document, but as those of you who have been here for previous exhibitions, particularly New York and slavery, are well aware that New York City was very tied into the slave South economically through its merchants, through its shipbuilders, through mm -hmm. its insurance companies, its banks, so. And its mayor. That's right. <laughs> And so there was a great deal of pro-Southern sentiment yeah. in this city, and we'll see more evidence of that down the road. The next object. Two objects. Two flags. Yeah. The one on the left, uh, we're pretty sure, flew from a Fifth Avenue window uh, in Lower Manhattan when the 7th Regiment marched off to the seat of war in April 1861. Uh, the, the city was completely suffused with flags. Journalists called it flag mania. Everyone waved the American flag, and all of the American flags had 34 stars. There was no uh, acknowledgment of secession. In fact, they added Kansas. The most Kansas had just been admitted yeah. to the Union, so they got it in there. Yeah. We counted this a few times. It's really 34 stars. And, and the Palmetto flag uh, is a South Carolina flag, you know, based on Revolutionary War symbolism, that was allegedly flown from a house in Charleston at the Sumter Crisis just a few weeks before the American flag was flown here in New York. What is that snake crawling up the palmetto tree? That's the snake of freedom that if chopped up, <laughs> uh, rejoins like states are supposed to join. The irony is here they're joined when the states are separated. And it, the palmetto it, is, of course, the symbol of South Carolina. It's a time. very, if you've been in South Carolina, that's about all you see on the road. There's <laughs> this palmetto of pines. But the, is the snake related to the old revolutionary iconography, don't tread on yes. me, the snake? So yes. it, it's interesting, as Harold said, the secessionists are, you know, carefully linking themselves back to the American Revolution. They do they're not see... They're appropriating the iconography. Right. They don't see what they're doing as a repudiation of the Revolution, nope. but as a continuation uh, of, the American, of, of the American Revolution. And um, so this is, uh, this, is, this is quite an interesting juxtaposition. Um, okay, the next item is a military uniform. Not, it, before, it was all blue and gray, obviously. <laughs> right. Well, this is a Zouave uniform, as many of you will recognize it, and it's in pristine condition. It was, it was used, worn by a soldier named David Davis, who fought at Second Bull Run, Antietam, Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, 
not in that order, Fredericksburg Chancellorsville, uh, you know, these were the elite core of drill, drill masters and um, I was so they say kept exhibitionists. wearing this all the through the war? They did, in declining numbers. I mean, in well, the naturally, smoke of, I mean, yeah, you're I know. A, you, naturally, their numbers are declining. If you're wearing that, you're a pretty easy target Absolutely. out there on the battlefield. And that, but they were defined. I mean, can you imagine that the toughest guys in, on the field were dressed like harem dancers? Yeah, I know. Wearing these red pantaloons, these, <laughs> these cut-off jackets. Oh, and the fez. We don't know where the fez is, but... They had a fez with a tassel to top it off. You know, off, keyed off uh, French adaptations of, of Moroccan uniforms that the Foreign Legion had exported back to France. And did Southern units have, have some uniforms like this too? They did, not as many. There was even a Corps d'Afrique that had Zouave uniforms. And they were easy targets. They were easy for sharpshooters, and, but they wore them so proudly. They look good, but uh, not that practical no. in the, on the <laughs> battlefield. They're, they're, they're probably better in a parade. Um, all right, let, let's go to the next, which is a letter. We don't expect you to decipher it uh, on the screen, although it's well worth reading when you pick up the book. Um, but Harold, tell us what is in this letter. Again, it's a testimony to the complicated relationship that New York and New Yorkers had to the, to the secession crisis and to the, the outset of the war. This is a letter by a man named Howard Cushing Wright, a long, long, long letter. Most of it is reproduced in the book because we thought it was worthwhile. Um, his mother is from Charleston, his father is a New York merchant, and he spent some happy summers in the South, and he goes down there at the beginning of the crisis and he just decides he's not gonna come back. And this is his letter to his mother saying, I know that my sisters will, they have a big family, I know my sisters will probably, and their husbands will never speak to me again, but um, you know, God ordained slavery in the Bible, and I think it's worth fighting for um, against tyranny and oppression. Again, New York is, is very, very complicated. And this was written, what, what's the month of this, do you remember? It, it's 1861, mm -hmm. and um, this fellow eventually put his, um, his uh, money where his mouth was. He joined the Confederate service, and irony of ironies, he died on April 14, 1865, the same day Abraham Lincoln was shot. Really at the end, really after Lee's So he surrender. died after the surrender of Lee. The war is virtually He died in over. North Carolina with oh, uh, the Johnston. Last, the yeah. last army was in the field in North Carolina, and they yeah. didn't surrender till May, I think. Right. But that's uh, pretty late in the war to, yeah. to die. But this is another very, as Harold said, a very interesting personal statement, testament of sympathy for the South, sympathy for, the sla for slavery, of a New Yorker, right? Yeah. And yet ended up fighting, and uh, never came back fighting for the Confederacy. Um, okay, now a painting, or uh, yes, this, this is, is uh, Edwin White's uh, painting, which has had a, a long series of titles over the years, uh, and open to interpretation, of course. It's called Thoughts of Liberia. Emancipation, and it shows an, an aging African American. We don't know whether he's free or enslaved, sitting by a fireplace, and we're meant to believe that he's contemplating his future in a world, and this is an 1861 painting. This is before emancipation, uh, but contemplating what his future will be in the midst of and after this tremendous upheaval, which the painter is suggesting will include uh, upheavals in the relationship between enslaved people and their masters. And you see on the door, there's a little poster 
that says Haiti on it, H-A-Y-T-I. So I'd, I'd be interested in knowing what you think of this painting. Eric. Yeah, it is. A, so much on this subject. It is a very interesting painting. First of all, he is reading. He's literate. There, there were some slaves who were literate, but the vast majority were not. It's unclear, as Harold said, whether he is a free man, a slave, right. where this is. Could be the South, could be the North, most likely the South. Um, but Haiti on the wall is very interesting because uh, certainly in the first two years of the Civil War, there was a great deal of discussion, including by President Lincoln himself, of the possibility of freed slaves being, as the phrase went at that time, colonized, either in some thought in Liberia, but Liberia is pretty far away, yeah. more likely Central America or Haiti. On, on the day or two before the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, Lincoln signed a contract with this fellow Koch, no, no relation to our former mayor, I don't believe. We don't think so. Right. right? But uh, to settle a small a number, a few hundred slaves on an island off of Haiti. Um, there were many, many reasons why people thought that this was a good idea. Lincoln said to a group of African-Americans in August 1862 that the reason why colonization was a good idea was that racism was so deeply embedded in American life that even though they would be free, they would never achieve equality uh, in the United States. And there certainly were black people who thought about emigrating from the United States and favored the idea, but the vast majority uh, did not and rejected the yeah. notion. And but you know, before Bull Run, Frederick <clears throat> Douglass said that Haiti was the land of Canaan. So in one of his editorials, so even Frederick Douglass, Douglass was briefly was, interested in the Haiti. He was planning to actually visit Haiti right. in the winter, in the secession winter, and and in his April issue of or May issue, I guess, after the firing of Fort Sumter of his magazine, Douglass's Monthly, he says, "I've I've changed my mind about going to Haiti because now things have changed so much with the war that a whole new possibility opens." But before the advent of the war, even Douglas was becoming, you know, disappointed, or that is to say, pessimistic about the prospects for African Americans. So having Haiti on the wall is a very interesting thing in this painter. We, we don't know exactly what the author is thinking about, but Haiti was on the minds of a lot of One thing he does here in, you know, classic art iconography, I'll show off my 21 years of experience. I've learned <laughs> one thing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and that's that a door I mean, he could have put the Haiti painting on the wall. Ah, interesting. On a door is either an entrance, it's either uh, a beginning, or it's something closed to you. So is the artist suggesting that's the only opportunity for this man, or is it that, or is that the, re the American door is closed to his future? I've seen interpretations of this painting that suggest that this tall, lean figure is not accidentally sitting next to a stovepipe hat that he's supposed to remind Americans that their new president was also someone who read by a fireplace That's and advanced himself. Now, but you, know, you can go wild with this. But Haiti history. has another meaning in 19th century America, which is to African Americans, it was a source of tremendous pride. And the great slave revolution in right. Haiti was celebrated in the United States. And um, John Brown studied the Haitian mm -hmm. revolution. So Haiti is not just a place to go, but a symbol of black rebelliousness. And here's a little tidbit I just learned the other day. Do you know where the largest funeral event for John Brown took place? In Haiti. There was a, when he was executed, there was a giant procession with an empty coffin to a grave labeled Hero of Liberty for John Brown. So he knew about them and they knew about him. Anyway, 
take a look at the painting and see what you think in, in the flesh. So and that's almost always on view here, so yeah. the art you can see. Okay, let's move on to the next, uh, another painting. And maybe the biggest painting in the society's collection. <laughs> right. The return of the um, Irish Brigade from Bull Run. A bigger artistic tribute to a smaller achievement has never been known in the annals <laughs> of the Civil War. <laughs> Uh, they, they don't even have the colonel who went down there with them. Colonel Michael Corcoran was captured and imprisoned by the Confederates. And, yeah, what uh, is it to, what well, they be celebrating there? It's not well, like it's they the won Irish, the battle. No, they didn't win and they <laughs> didn't, I mean, nobody acquitted themselves per, 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 rather well, but here is Colonel Marr, M-E-A-G-H-E-R, but I'm reliably told he pronounced it Marr, uh, coming to the foot of Manhattan, returning and getting a huge hero's brigade uh, a hero's welcome uh, from women, you know, beautiful women are throwing themselves at the, at the brigade, the wounded are shown, uh, people are leaning out of windows at the battery, and uh, there's a little tribute to Corcoran in the lower right, there's a, little, uh, there's a little print seller, little boy selling prints of Colonel Corcoran there on the street, so I'm very <laughs> romanticized, you know, dogs running around, kids playing. But here's a question, why are they coming back to New York after the battle. Because Shouldn't they're 90-day they, wonders. That's the point. They are just, at the beginning enlistings. of the war, Lincoln asked for volunteers to serve for 90 days, which suggests that, it, obviously, he thought it would be a very short war. Nobody had any concept of what was really coming in terms of the mass bloodshed and the length of the right. war. So they enlisted in April. This is the end of July, July so they're finished. They're Three done. months, they've done it. I now, mean, in all fairness, the, the Irish Brigade, the 69th Regiment, they go, did reorganize. No, they go back again, Some of, of these course. people went back. The rest of them said, I've done my bit. I've done my 90 days. So they're, they're back celebrating after losing the one battle which had taken place. And, right. Uh, when I wrote um, a book about Civil War paintings, I guess it's 20 years ago, I'm mortified to acknowledge, um, we wanted very much to reproduce this picture, but it was actually not even photographed, and it was not in great condition. For the reopening of its galleries, uh, Louise Mirror saw to the restoration of this incredibly detailed, huge job. Just physically, it's gigantic. And look at it now. It's one of the treasures of the collection. It's Pretty remarkable. Perfect. This was on view in the Nerdler Gallery downtown in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Up until the draft riots, it was a very popular painting and then people lost interest. <laughs> right, then they didn't. Okay, let's move to the next. Uh, this, this is entirely different. This yep. is a three-dimensional model, right? It's called a half model. A half model. And it's a half model of, I'm sure you all recognize it, it's the USS Monitor, which was a made in New York product. You know, iron from Troy, built in Greenpoint, uh, in a shed that's still there, the Continental Works. Um, but this is exactly, there are two half models made, one for Horace Bushnell and one for um, Thomas Rowland, who eventually got the contract and made a lot of money to build it. And this is exactly the kind of model they brought to Washington, where the naval board was convened, these crusty old guys, to see this absurd idea that John Erickson, the Swedish inventor, had um, to develop in America. There are a few ironclads in Europe. And the great moment comes. I mean, Lincoln could have not imposed himself, but they, they show the model, and the, the naval board looks at it, and they're not sure what they're looking at. And so they defer very gallantly to the commander-in-chief. They say, Mr. President, what do you think? And he says, well... He didn't have a lot of naval experience. No, he, he got seasick and even looked at the war. <laughs> 
he said, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it strikes me that it's like when the beautiful woman put on a pair of stockings. I think there's something in it. <laughs> <laughs> if he had not green-lit it, or green-lighted it that moment, it would not it have would been built in time to go and, and meet the Fight Merrimack the monitor. It, it is, it, they called it a, uh, what, a little uh, a, cheese, a, a cheese on a thing on a raft, right. It's pretty big, though. I mean, if there's a scale model down in Virginia. It's pretty big, but it's, you know, it, it was but low this in is, the water. This is symbolic of the tremendous technological innovation that, that the Civil the War, war uh, uh, stimulates. The, the Civil War is the first war where the Industrial Revolution is really brought to bear on the battlefield. Ironclad ships is one example, but the use of railroads, the mines. artillery, the mines, yeah. balloons, the telegraph, all, all sorts of modern inventions are used really for the first time. The Crimean War had had some of it, but no one here really knew what was going on in the Crimean War a few years earlier. But the, the, the ironclad ships really, this is the death knell eventually of the wood navy, yeah. right? And Thomas Rowland, I mean, it's just, I'm always interested in, how, in the, um, the ownership history of objects like this. Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Rowland, the builder, as soon as the war was over, he donated this to the New York Historical Society, and um, it's been here since 1865. Okay, let's go to the next uh, petition. This Difficult is a, to read, but tell us what it is. Well, it's a tiny segment of a 25-foot-long petition uh, that was prepared. I'm not sure if it was ever sent, because only swatches of this thing exist in the Lincoln Papers, but prepared to send to Abraham Lincoln um, saying in, in, in 1861, do free the slaves already. And it's filled with names that show that New York was a mosaic of ethnic groups. Even then, there's a Jewish doctor, there are Irishmen named O'Rourke and Flaherty and O'Shea. There were Vanderbilts and Whitney's. So it's not African-Americans primarily. No, there are African-Americans. Somebody signs John Brown, who's dead, and someone, uh, it's uh, got 800 signatures altogether, and it's a scroll, an astonishing early rallying of- uh, And this is know, from 1862. 62. Right, before- Before, for, early 62. Right. But there are all the names, their addresses, uh, and it's just Manhattan, but- bringing the pressure to bear on the president through petition. Right. Well, the, that's in the First Amendment, the right to petition, right? right? Um, okay, and so let's look at another pressure that comes to bear on Lincoln in the next... Uh, this is one of my favorite objects in the book, I have to say. Um, the, the Historical Society has a huge collection of original art that was prepared by the forgotten sketchbook artists of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. I mean, fabulous stuff. Worth another book uh, someday. But um, so we were looking through them, and here's one, and it had a fascinating caption. And here's the backstory. Uh, as you know, and Eric will comment on this too, this is in his wheelhouse, but the, the Emancipation Proclamation takes effect on January 1st, 1863. Of course, nobody says everybody's free, it has to be fought for wherever Union troops advance, they march with copies of the proclamation. Whenever enslaved people hear that Union troops are near to hand, they take action themselves and, and emancipate themselves. And so here's an example. It's an innocuous looking drawing, accomplished but not dramatic, of some enslaved people in the center coming into the lines of Grant's army at Vicksburg in uh, the summer of 1863. But who are these slaves? They are the slaves owned by Jefferson Davis at the Chickasaw Plantation near 
Vicksburg. If there's ever, to me, Eric, you may dispute this, but if there's ever evidence that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation mm -hmm. was effective, mm -hmm. his counterpart at Richmond lost his slaves due so to the proclamation. So this was not from Davis Bend, no, this which is, is from where Chicksaw. most of his plantations this are. This is one, okay. yeah, this is from Chickasaw. And, um, well, he it, was outraged by this. I'm sure he was. <laughs> where were my Where were my overseers? Where were my well, people? Well, because Davis was known as a as these things go as a rather uh, humane slave owner, right? As I mean, these things go, yeah. And and uh, in fact, um, after this, when I was working on Reconstruction, I saw a petition in 1865 by a group of blacks after the war was over urging the from Mississippi urging that Davis be released from prison and it said even though he was a slave owner he was known as one of the better ones or something like that now, you know this is all relative but uh, now it is true that when the Union Army came to Davis Bend where he and his brother had their big plantations and his brother said to the slaves we're leaving the slaves said what do you mean we you know <laughs> So they weren't so devoted to the Davises. Right. You know, they, they stayed to get their freedom from when the Union Army. When I did Army. research for this, I was looking in some of the Davis, uh, published Davis papers, and Davis sold slaves and horses in January 65 and sold his, his Richmond slaves south to Would get be, some extra yep. money. So I don't know how you Well, who's anyway. buying slaves in January 1865? You wouldn't say that's a very smart investment, no. right? Um, <laughs> All right, let's move on to another uh, in very interesting object. And one of the most famous objects in the Civil War collection here, this draft wheel that was uh, uh, ready for use on the east side of Manhattan uh, on, uh, in July 1863. The Union has won the Battle of Gettysburg. The Conscription Act is taking effect. And, of course, we know what happened. The New York City draft riots began raging. And many draft officers were destroyed, gutted, burned. Um, and yet this one, this draft wheel was preserved, not only intact, it's got all the draft cards inside. They literally turned the thing. They and turned the wheel with that out. big crank, and there's the top. Well, yeah. There's the top. And the top comes off, and someone reaches in and pulls out a name. It's and sort of like the lottery on TV, right? They do that. They spin around, someone yeah, pulls out the thing. With a slightly different outcome. A little outcome. different outcome, right. But, but this is... <laughs> This is a big, a big relic, and of course, you know, it's, it's um, an astonishing thing that it survived yeah, all these years. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and of course, Harold said, we all know, the riot, the riot uh, you know, decimated parts of New York, and the next item is a symbol of one of the targets of the riot. One of the most <laughs> extraordinary things that, I mean, I'm sure scholars knew this about the collection, but the collection has all of the records of the Colored Orphans Asylum, which was, of course, burned to the ground by the rioters. It stood just north of where the Fifth Avenue Library is. And um, there were children, a couple of hundred children from infancy to young teens. People went in, they said they took the mattresses off the beds and set fire to them. And the, the ministers were afraid to take the people, the kids out because the mob was outside saying, kill them, kill them, kill them. And he said, children, I'm going to hold the Bible. Follow me and God will watch over us. And this is the Bible. Charred by the flickering flames, I'm convinced of the Colored Orphans Asylum. By the way, a beautiful, beautiful facility from all the descriptions I read with verdant gardens and squares. And, you know, the kids were on the third floor where there was air and the dining facility, school rooms. And this is a relic from... And by right. the way, those children walked out 
they were unharmed because the bullies did not, even they did not have the gall to attack these kids, and there were some people who spoke up for them. They simply walked downtown, and another, I mean, we know that the, the rioters were largely Irish-American. An Irish-American young man said, the police precinct is that way, and they went into the police precinct, were there overnight, and then were shipped to what is now Roosevelt Island and mm, saved. Right. But this is this So is this was, a, the riots were a sign of how deep racism was in the North as well as the South, but on the other hand, the next object suggests other tendencies that were also going on. Well, the Union League, uh, down then in Union Square, was the first group in New York to advocate for a U.S. colored troops regiment out of New York. It would be nice to say that New York was in the vanguard of that movement, but this was 1864. There already a Massachusetts regiment or two, an upstate regiment. This regiment did not muster in until September 20th, 1864. Before that, they were trained on Rikers. Um, they didn't get tense, as the white recruits did. A lot of them died of disease. And when they finally came over on September 20th, this was the address, the copy of the address that was issued to welcome them into the service. Now, the good news is every newspaper uh, in town, the, the Times, the Tribune, the Herald, all said that it was the, an astonishing outpouring of white and black people to welcome these uh, soldiers. By the way, during the period when they were being recruited, for weeks, no New York landlord would rent them a space. And they finally shared space with a, an office that had been set up for reparations from the draft rise. Hmm. So it's not a perfect story. New York got to this point late. And I loved reading the programs uh, in the collection about the event. They got a wonderful flag designed by Emanuel Gottlieb Leutze. But when it was time to have a big celebration inside the Union League, the white officers went inside for the collation, right. and the black troops had coffee outside. Right. They never were in a major battle, so they never had huge casualties, but uh, that's the good mm -hmm. part of the story. Right. Okay, and let's go to the next one. One of the um, dangers that historians always face is assuming the inevitability of what happened. We know Abraham Lincoln was reelected. It seems completely inconceivable that he might not have been reelected in 1864, but it wasn't uh, so sure. And uh, certainly in the August, September, uh, there were a lot of people worried, including Lincoln himself. So what is this? This has to do with the election of 1864. Yeah, do we all remember what, when Tim Russert had that big piece of oak tag and wrote down the electoral votes? The mm -hmm. path to victory for either Bush or Gore? Right. This is Lincoln's Tim Russert moment, or is it the other way around? So we knew that he did this later in the campaign, because there's another example in the Huntington collection. He's listing the electoral listing votes. Listing the votes that he thinks he's going to win, the states he's going to win, and the states he thinks he's going to lose. This, is, this came before, I never knew this existed. I don't know if any Lincoln scholars know that this exists. He's giving himself the barest of victories. He's conceding New York. He's conceding right. Pennsylvania. He's conceding Indiana. But look where he's doing this tabulation. He goes to the War Department every night to check on the movements of the armies. And between reports, I mean, he's concerned about the armies, but look, he's also concerned about the commander-in-chief. He's taking notes on War Department stationery, 
and he's just seeing himself eking through, and then of course Atlanta happens, and he wins handily. Didn't they, I can't remember if Nevada is on this list. It's on the second one. The second one. They didn't have Nevada. They admitted Nevada right before the election to get its three electoral votes just in case. Exactly, and on the next version, he puts Nevada in his column. Okay, get another three. They figured they'd win Nevada, but. um, So this is an extraordinary discovery. Lincoln was a very good politician, along with many other qualities, as he always had been back even in Illinois in his early days. He was a very careful, he knew everybody in his district, he knew the tendencies of each town, he studied yeah. the election. So this was, but what is amazing about this is he's, as you said, he's, he's thinking he's gonna lose New York, he's gonna lose Pennsylvania, how can I still win with those? Paths uh, to victory. Going, but you're right, you know, in 1860, somebody brings him uh, a note in the early telegrams, well, this district in Illinois is voted, um, 311 for Douglas and 254 for you. I'm really sorry, Mr. Lincoln. And he says, oh no, that probably means I'm gonna win Illinois because Fremont did much worse last time against Buchanan. He knew every county and district in his own state. So he was a real student of this. He was a student of politics, absolutely. Um, Okay, now the last two before we go to um, uh, our questions. This is, what is this document? Another unknown, at least to me, piece. These, this is the original, these are the original terms of surrender at Appomattox in General Grant's handwriting. Now, why does the Historical Society have it? When Grant got to Washington to get his commission as Lieutenant General, he went to a stationery store, this is documented, and he bought a manifold of waxy paper. Our generation knows it as carbon paper, but it wasn't black, it was waxy, which could make impressions, and this would make five copies at a time. When Lee got to the McLean House in Appomattox, Lincoln said to Colonel Eli Parker, Grant said, said, sorry, bring out that thing and and I will write out the terms. And he wrote out the terms. When it was all over, he took out one of the yellow pieces of paper and gave it to Colonel Eli Parker. Now, why is that a great story? And then it came to his widow and then to the military order of the Loyal Legion, then in 1926, to the Historical Society. Why is this story so great? For those of you who saw the, the Lincoln movie, you know there's a great surrender scene. But at the, what they didn't show, because it only showed people coming out of the McLean house, when Lee signed the final version of this, he shook hands all around Grant's staff. And he got to Colonel Eli Parker, who was an American Indian, big guy. And he sort of stopped short and looked at him. And then he sort of snarled to him, because whatever people say about Lee that day, he was in a very bad mood. (laughs) Right, no doubt. (laughs) He looked at Parker and said, figure it out who he was. And he said, well, I'm glad there's at least one real American here in this room. (laughs) And Parker looked right at him and said, General Lee, today we are all Americans. A great moment by a Native mm-hmm. American to mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee. And here it is, the surrender terms. And where are the, do we know where the other four copies are? Uh, is, presumably one must be in the National Archives, we would assume. Yeah, and I don't know where the others are. Yeah. One is in the archives, of course, yeah. And, of course, the uh, final... Uh, oh, no, this is the... This, what yeah, this is, is this? the final item. Oh, I thought we had something else. All right, I, I looked at an earlier verse. So tell us what this is. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a homespun tribute to Abraham Lincoln, uh, someone who was one of the 250,000 mourners who um, lined up to see Lincoln's body as it lay in state on the second floor of City Hall in April 1865. 
just swiped a little sprig of laurel leaves, went home, um, cut out a photograph of Lincoln from a carte de visite, a little bit of black crepe, maybe the black he wore on his lapel that day, and put it together in a little collage, wrote down what it was and framed it. And here it is, unchanged, um, just did, as it did, was. Was it brought to the viewing, you think, or we don't know? Uh, no, Lincoln was gone. Um, oh, Lincoln was gone by that Lincoln point. was gone, but he went home with his purloined laurel leaf. You know, this is, you know, Whitman in um, Lilac's Last right, of the Door right. Moon says, I give you my sprig of lilac, and it's not quite lilac, but it's uh, a real piece mm -hmm. of evidence of the affection. You know, in April 65, all the years of dissension and opposition melt away, right. and Lincoln becomes a universal hero, and uh, here a New Yorker who may or may not have supported him during the, the tough years of the war. Right, well, the pictures of the procession in New York and the city with blood, draped in black and everything are very dramatic and moving uh, images of that time. Um, well, we have reached the point at which we will entertain questions from the audience. We have two microphones, one at either end. I invite anyone who wishes to, to just come to a microphone and um, uh, just please quickly state who you are, your name, and then pose your question. Hi, I'm Jim Pasinich. Uh, my question deals with the painting of the return of the fighting 69th. When I look at that, I see a city realizing that these men who walked off three months before in a great hurrah, uh, they're facing the reality that this war is really going to be a war and that it's going to take its toll on people. I mean, I think the painting says that. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, Corcoran is not there. He's only right. there as an effigy. And that's, that is a, 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 a difficult reminder to people and to the Irish-American community that the war has consequences, that it's not all glory. And yet still, I, I see that part of it, but I think the, the, the main bar here, the main story is that in 1861, even though Bull Run has brought a harsh reality, it's still romanticized to some degree. Bull Run, compared to the battles later, was a pretty minor uh, yeah. event with low casualties. Well, 3,000 is pretty rough, but nobody mm. expect, if nobody expected Right, it, nobody yeah. knew what would be coming. It was supposed to end in an afternoon, right? Right, right. Uh, My yes, name sir. is, I'm sorry. Go ahead, yes. My name is Bud Livingston, and I think Harold knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't, the monitor, the monitor was not built in New York, I'm oh. sorry. It was built in Brooklyn. Oh, oh my God. I, I, I should know because I wrote a book about Brooklyn called Brooklyn and the Civil War, and it was the third largest city in America at that time, New York, Philadelphia, Brooklyn. Uh, the other item is I would read something different into that sign on the door saying Haiti, because the Confederates, the southern states, were deathly afraid of another Haiti. They were fearful of a rebellion of the slaves, and I think that sign was like that to you. This is what we could do if you let us. So. It's not impossible. I mean, as Harold said, there are many ways of interpreting that painting. And certainly the fear, as I think Mary Chestnut said in her diary, um, she talks about growing up in the South and the tales of Haiti, the fears about Haiti, right. the emigres from Haiti who spread stories of the massacres of white people and the slave insurrection uh, was deeply ingrained in the Southern uh, psyche. There's no question about that. And if you see anti-Lincoln cartoons of the period, they're often background pictures that say Santa Domingo. They're related to that. Santa Domingo. So Bud, I, Bud Livingston is a great scholar of Lincoln and New York and even Brooklyn, 
You accept, I, his, do you accept his correction? Well, my mother was born in Greenpoint, and I feel terrible that I've made this mistake because she'll be watching this at some point. I see. Uh, but uh, yes, mea culpa for Brooklyn Greenpoint. Brooklyn deserves all the uh, credit that uh, it is entitled to. Uh, yes, on this, here you are. Jordan Woke, had the United States recognized Haiti by the time that painting was done? No, that was 1861. Lincoln established, and Congress established diplomatic relations with Haiti in, 18, in the spring of 1862. So at this point, there were no diplomatic relations. They had not been right. since the Haitian Revolution. Um, Lincoln's, ex, you know, the, the recognition, diplomatic recognition of Haiti was one of the many steps toward emancipation, I think, uh, because, um, and, and you know, Democrats in Congress complained that, you know, well, you'll have to accept a black ambassador then. They're going to send a black ambassador. He's going to come to the White House. And Lincoln said, I don't care who they send as an ambassador. What, who, what difference does it make? You know, so um, it was a little, it was a step toward overcoming this ingrained racism uh, in the political system. Okay, ma'am, yes. I'm James Weifler, and I just wanted to uh, mention that Eli Parker has a living relative <laughs> uh, here who lives in Buffalo, New York. I did some research because a gentleman by the name of Johnson wrote something called Grant's uh, uh, Indian. He wrote this, this book called Grant's Indian, and I decided to figure out who that was, and I found out the gentleman's name was Alvin Parker, and he came down and talked to the Civil War, around, uh, Civil War uh, Forum, and, and it was, actually the story was even picked up by the New York Times, in which they said he came to, to uh, have, claim his heritage. So he, he, he was there, and he also was invited back by the uh, uh, Grants uh, Association and uh, and the Parks Department and came back in his full full regalia and uh, he's still with us. <laughs> well, we, we forget. I mean, one of the explanations for this material being here in New York and at the Historical Society is that Eli Parker was also involved with the building of Grant's tomb after his chief's that's right. death. That's right. So also he's, he's in New York and that's why. His widow is in New York, and the, the, all these series of events that result in material winding up in this they institution. They also said he also worked for uh, Theodore Roosevelt in, in the it, War yeah. Department. Well, so he can be invited back at any out. time in full regalia. <laughs> it is worth noting that the Civil War was a disaster for Native Americans overall. Uh, this was not the cause of the war, mm -hmm. but uh, in fact, ironically, in the spring of 1861, even as Lincoln is deciding to maintain the federal garrison at Fort Sumter, when many people thought he should withdraw, he's withdrawing troops from forts in the west. And that's where all our soldiers, our yeah, Union soldiers, to were bring all them east. And Native Americans, although they had fought the army a lot, objected strenuously because without those soldiers, there was no protection for them from settlers and marauders and uh, people intruding on their lands. And uh, some of the worst massacres in America, particularly Sand Creek, uh, took place in the West during uh, the Civil War. So it's uh, and of course in um, in Minnesota, right? And um, the of the Sioux right. uprising in Minnesota. Lincoln actually um, condemns more people to death in a single mass ex execution than, than have ever been executed. Something like thirty-five. Yeah, or something. although he winnows it down from they were a like two hundred yeah. uh, sentenced to death for participating in this, what was called the Sioux Uprising. It was just, a, it was really, you know, part of the continual Indian wars out there. But, uh, and Lincoln went through 
all of the uh, courts martial and winnowed, the names phonetically. Winnowed it out. Winnowed it out we forget right. Lincoln was an old Indian fighter. He never saw much Well, he action. never fought anybody, but no. he was in the militia. He right? was in the militia, right? But he didn't. Uh, he act said he saw an old Indian once. Right, and who he protected. He protected he from protect his uh, uh, troops who were anxious to do. All right, that's another story. Yes, go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Sid Lapidus, a trustee of the society. A comment and a question. The comment is to thank you two gentlemen for one of the most interesting presentations I've seen here at the society. Thank you, sir. Well, that's very kind of you. The, the, the question, Harold, has to do with provenance. Uh, it's fascinating, the Lincoln County electoral votes. It's what we see on television all the time. Uh, how did it get here? <laughs> you know, I. It's, it's got an attestation on it of the person who, he left it behind in the War Department. And the clerk, because as we know now, there were a couple of uh, versions of this. Uh, as he got closer to the election, he was more generous with himself. But the clerk saved it. And in usual cases, children and grandchildren, as you go through the provenance, uh, donate to the Historical Society. And um, if we have a a section that my friend Val Paley insisted on and, and is responsible for. At the end of the book, each item has a complete provenance to the full extent that we know the year of acquisition, how it came. And we, when we have a good story, we tell it in each chapter. As, as we know, Harold it has been and is the director of communications at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So he's very interested lately in provenance. And um, but the... Uh, the New York Historical Society has not yet been asked to return anything. Uh, not as, to Cambodia, sir. Right, no. So I hope that these, all these objects are very carefully winnowed as to uh, they are ownership is correct. Impeccably provenance. Right. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Sue Burkhan. I was just at Fort Sumter, and I looked very closely at the South Carolina state flag, and I noticed in your version there is a snake on the trunk, whereas there is no snake uh, flying at, South, uh, at Fort Sumter. And I wondered where the, the flag that you have in the collection um, was, um, how the society acquired it. It was, it was, again, donated by a descendant. But remember, in this period, there is no, um, you can't go on the web and look up a flag store. <laughs> you, you, people, everybody makes flags, everybody designs their own flags. The crescent has a meaning, the palmetto, the snake, and, and it's really almost a homespun activity. There's so, a lot of flags floating around at this time. Very well put. Yeah, so it, it, they weren't all identical, right? Right. So the official flag of South Carolina does have the serpent? No. No, it doesn't. Remember, it's where, it doesn't. where, where this is, the, the, the palmetto was used in the Revolutionary War, so that sustained itself as a South Carolina symbol mm -hmm. to the sec what they perceived to be the second Revolutionary War. And then they get to the point of state flags. And remember, the Confederate flag changes several times during right. the Civil War as well. The one that's objectionable today is a flag that came later in the war than in 1861. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The battle flag, right. Okay, yes. Uh, my name is Menachem Ginak. I just wanted to follow up about the stories about Lincoln and Indians, because it it demonstrates his decency in other contexts. In, in, uh, in that event in Minnesota when they had the Sioux, the, these Sioux Indians were just starving. It wasn't, uh, and uh, Lincoln went through every single name, I think through 200, actually the 37 who, who we were executed, the largest hanging at that day, 
and that the governor of Minnesota at the time told him, you're going, Ramsey, to, lose, governor Ramsey. You're going to lose this election because of that. So we see, first of all, Lincoln's courage. And, I and just he says that you can't execute people for politics. Right. Ramsey wrote him a letter saying, yeah. we'll, it'll hurt the Republican Party if you pardon any of these people in the election of 1862. And yeah, Lincoln said, well, I'm not going to execute people to get votes. You know? right. And the other Lincoln story, in terms of Indians, Lincoln is named after his grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, who was killed by, by Indians. That's true, too. That's true. And the, Miller has this in his book, Lincoln's Virtues. He says that during the Black Hawk War, his his company, whatever, captured an Indian, and everybody else in his company wanted to kill him. Lincoln, who, who had this in his mind, that he was, who he is named after, he stood between them, and he, and he saved that Indian. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that even though Lincoln grew up on the frontier where there was a lot of anti-Indian sentiment, he did not share that visceral right. hatred of Indians that was not uncommon. The problem facing Native Americans, and Lincoln, in a sense, didn't even think this through, I think, is that the, the policy of the Republican Party, which Lincoln himself supported, of westward expansion, of homesteads on the mm -hmm. prairies for white settlers and others, was premised on removing the Indians. That, that, and he, goodness knows his generals after yeah. the war proceeded well, certainly right into after the war, but you know, phase, So the, yeah. the whole vision of the future of America didn't have much space for Indians in it, in Lincoln's or anyone else's uh, 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 ideas at that time. Well, we have reached 7.30, which is... Oh, one more. Go ahead. I've got two more minutes, or three more minutes. All right. Okay. Well, it, it, since you're the president and CEO, your clock is correct. <laughs> you know, um, as many objects as we have in our collection that um, tell the story of the Civil War, we have huge numbers of objects that tell the story of Lincoln's casket, the funeral procession passing through the city, and though you did say, um, both of you said before, that New York has sort of turned towards Lincoln, um, never having really supported him during his presidency, turned in his favor at his death. Um, I'm just wondering if you could, you know, maybe use the last two minutes to describe this and or account for this incredible turnaround, because it certainly is one. Well, those of us who lived through and remember the Kennedy assassination, know how, the, how politicians can turn into martyrs and national symbols overnight, and guilt and remorse and um, loss can, can, can make people feel um, an emotional response. No, absolutely. Kennedy was not all that popular no. at the moment of his assassination. In fact, not the Republicans thought they had an excellent had chance, chance of yeah. beating him. So, and there I see experts, uh, like Richard Sloan in the audience who know more about the Lincoln funeral than I could ever hope to know. But we're talking about something like a million people who are gathered more than, almost as much as the population of New York. I'll leave out Brooklyn uh, to <laughs> not get into trouble. Even African Americans who had to get a special uh, uh, clearance from the Secretary of War to march in the funeral, even though Lincoln's body was gone by the, final, by the time they brought up the rear. But Drapes, black drapery everywhere. 250,000 people seeing the body, hundreds of thousands more on the street when Lincoln arrived and also when he left. Church bells tolling, music playing, um, um, a funereal atmosphere that was so, so deeply felt by so many people that uh, Theodore Roosevelt's father made sure that he and his brother stood at their window. There's a photograph. You can see these little figures in the window that must be the two of them. And watch so they can always tell their children that they saw the body of Abraham Lincoln pass by their street. 
So it was universal. And one of the Republican papers that had always supported Lincoln wrote in New York, he is now universally loved, better now at least than never. Mm -hmm. Dale and with Gregory. that, we thank Eric Foner and Harold Holzer. Thank you, Harold. Good.